everyone. Welcome back to A Little Help for Our Friends. Today's topic is a source of fascination for so many with the dropout, the fascination of Elizabeth Holmes, inventing Anna, um, the explosion in true crime. Today's topic is antisocial personality disorder, or what people often casually call psychopathy or sociopathy. So we elicited questions from our followers. We got excellent questions and We'll aim to answer these as best we can on this episode, given that the research is a little confusing. One thing that's confusing is that we throw around these terms all the time. What's a psychopath? What's a sociopath? Are they the same thing? And then the only thing really uh, noted officially in the DSM is this diagnosis called antisocial personality. So where do these three terms fit together? Kibby, can you give us the diagnostic criteria for antisocial personality disorder? Sure. Um, this it, it's interesting because I think this uh, DSM diagnosis is really uh, heavily weighted on the violent law-breaking qualities, right? So, I mean, just in general for people listening, it's the central features of antisocial personality disorder is um, irresponsible and violation of rights others, that lack of empathy, impulsivity, aggressiveness, and the tendency to disregard rights and boundaries of others, right? So it's like criminality. But basically what you have to do in order to um, meet criteria for this was actually pretty rare. It's about like only like 3% of the population. Um, you need to have uh, three or more of these these criteria. Um, failure to conform to social norms with so failure to um, obey the law and um, go to work and uh, do things as you're told. Um, deceitfulness, so people who tend to lie or con others, um, maybe pathologically, like they do it a lot. Impulsivity or don't plan ahead. So people who maybe jump from job to job or relationship to relationship without a long term planning, they just want things. So they go for it. Um, irritability and aggressiveness. They're really um, hot headed. They tend to react with a lot of anger, a lot of violence towards others, um, usually leads to like fights and assaults. Uh, reckless disregard for safety of others. So um, doing things that like intentionally hurt themselves or others and they don't even care, like driving fast or um, uh, running companies to the ground and making people lose their lives and jobs. Um, consistent irresponsibility, like they don't like to go to school. They don't like to go to work. They constantly renege on their responsibilities. And lack of remorse. So they just don't, they look like they don't care. That's the lack of empathy piece. They hurt people and they don't seem to care. So I kind of think of this disorder as like an extreme goal-oriented person, right? Someone who wants money, drugs, power, and they go for that no matter what. No matter who they hurt, no matter what they destroy, um, you know, obviously a lot of this, a lot of these qualities, you can kind of see that it could be successful, right? They could be CEOs of something. But often this diagnosis is, um, it's really related to people who are not that good at it, who um, act this way and then end up in jail. So that's a lot of our research is based on people who are in jail, not as much with the, you know, quote unquote, successful um, people with antisocial personality disorder. And the one, the one last thing that's kind of interesting about this personality disorder is that you have to have met criteria for at least two of these or some of these um, criteria before the age of 15. So this has to actually exist when you're a kid, either aggressiveness or lying or something like that, like bullies. 
Um, which is weird because all the other personality disorders are diagnosed 18 and upward. And this one has this flavor of like the kid, you, you always were like this or something about it that was um, like biological. Well, the, the difference, so antisocial personality disorder can only be diagnosed in people 18 and up, but, uh, but some of these behaviors needed to have been present before age 15. Right. But back then the diagnosis likely would have been conduct disorder. Yeah, right. So you have to meet criteria for like two conduct disorder criteria in order to get the full criteria for antisocial. So there, at least what it says is there needs to be something in childhood. Um, and then the post-15 symptoms are uh, testing, aggressiveness, lack of remorse, deceitfulness. So more internal processes rather than strictly behaviors. Yeah, I, I really like um, the work by Temi Moffat, our, one of our one of our beloved professors at Duke, who was really a kind of a, one of the pioneers in our field, looking at how these disorders develop over time, the nature-nurture question. Um, and... By their research, a lot of kids who maybe are bullies or, you know, lie or con when they're younger might grow out of it, right? But a lot of some of them just keep on going. And they say that might it might be because kids who get in trouble are just then start to self select themselves into environments that encourage that they get into juvie, they hang out with gangs, they hang out with other bullies and um, it could keep going until they get to the point where they are criminals. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I mean, it's, you could see with any of these personality disorders, there could be different types, right? Yeah. Someone who just breaks the law and fight gets into fights, but they might feel bad about it. Or some people who are just cold, cold blooded, <laughs> start a company and screw over others and make it to the top and have a lack of remorse and empathy, but don't break a law. Well, they mm-hmm. might, but they might get away with it. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, so it's important to note that in these diagnoses, we list out a bunch of symptoms, but you don't need to meet all of them to meet criteria. So you could have two people with ASPD that look very different. Yeah. So as you were saying, there could be one person who breaks the law, cons people, um, and does have a sense of remorse about it, but they, they keep doing it anyway for whatever mm-hmm. reason uh, versus you could have another person who's maybe not engaging in as much criminal behavior but just has no empathy no no remorse for other mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where I think differences in psychopathy versus sociopathy can start to emerge mm-hmm. um, but one of the problems is that one of these terms is less well defined than the other so Kibby how would you define the psychopath the psychopath is probably the thing that people talk think about when they say, oh, they, they're so antisocial, they're a psychopath, right? Think of Patrick Bateman from American Psycho, or my favorite character of all time is Walt from um, Breaking Bad, right? So there's two parts to um, psychopathy. And this is well defined in the research, because um, a professor named Hare, H-A-R-E, made a psychopathy checklist. So this is what research is actually really helpful for. This person was like, let me define this, let me make a measure for this, and let's use this in research to really define what we're talking about. So psychopathy is two parts. The first part is the selfish, callous, and remorseless use of others. So people who exploit, who lie, um, take advantage and don't care, lack of empathy, right? So that's when we say antisocial. That's what we talk about. This kind of like, I use other people and don't care. Um, The other part is the chronically unstable antisocial and social deviant lifestyle. So I steal, I don't go to work, but I still hop around to different jobs and 
um, maybe drink a lot, use a lot of substances. So they don't follow kind of normal social norms. It's, um, it's more chaotic than that. Yeah. But it, as you could see, that definition doesn't necessarily have the criminality or causing fights. It could, but you don't need to. You could have someone like cool and calculated. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, just to give you an idea, some of the um, some of the items on this checklist basically are glibness or superficial charm, mm-hmm. grandiose sense of self worth. So actually, there's a there seems to be some correlation between psychopaths and narcissists. Proneness to boredom and low frustration tolerance. You know, so then we've got lying and deception, lack of sincerity, and then later you have things like behavior problems, lack of realistic long-term plans, failure to accept responsibility, um, and we also know that drug and alcohol abuse is very common in people with antisocial personality disorder broadly, um, mm-hmm. and and it's also an item on this list. So we see that eighty percent of People in jail tend to have ASPD, at least that was by one paper that I read, but a much lower percentage seem to score high on this measure of psychopathy level. It's more like 20 to 30%. So mm-hmm. you do have a lot of people with ASPD that wouldn't kind of meet this hair criteria for psychopathy. The ones that do tend to be uh, more impossible to treat, mm-hmm. less interested in treatment, but we'll talk more about that later. Yeah, I I think this is the this is the part that really gets people or really disturbs people when you even get a flavor of someone with psychopathy. And you could have a little bit of it, right? With the with these scales, it's dimensional. So some people can be really high like a Patrick Bateman or you could be just just have a little bit. And this is the part that's disturbing because I think that we really take for granted how important social connections are to people, right? Like you care about others. Uh, you don't have to be a bleeding heart therapist, lovey, you know, like, but mm-hmm. you care. You, if someone's in pain, it's supposed to, your empathy is supposed to, you're supposed to feel a little pain yourself. You're, you want people to like you. You want to get some approval. You want to maintain your relationships, whatever they are. You want to have a nice interaction with someone at the coffee shop. But people with psychopathy, they only care about their goals, which usually is like a power, dominance, money, fame, whatever that is. And they care so much about it that they don't care about your feelings. Mm-hmm. And um, some in some situations, actually, actually helpful, like some CEOs have to have that. Because in order to drive forward a super big successful company, you got to lay off a bunch of people sometimes. And I couldn't do that. You know, like that would break my heart to see people lose their jobs and cry and not be able to (laughs) um, afford a family. But uh, for people who drive super successful companies, often they might have a touch, if not a lot of psychopathy. It's just that Uh, they don't show up to research studies. So we don't know a lot about (laughs) it, right? Wouldn't that be cool? But yeah, I mean, I'm guessing that over at at, at a, a society level these people are helpful in a way that is keeping them present generation after generation now. so there's probably natural selection forces that are keeping these people here mm-hmm. for the reasons that you're talking about there are positions in society where it's important to fuck people over and mm-hmm. not care about it yeah <laughs> you don't want too many of these people running around and you definitely want checks on them in the form of the rest of society and the legal system. <laughs> but it's probably adaptive, maybe at a zoomed out level. 
Yeah, I, I when I was um, really interested in empathy research, I was trying to understand like, do they not ha- do psychopaths not have empathy? Um, and actually, it's more complicated than that. They don't they don't respond emotionally as much as we do to uh, faces and and expressions of fear and sadness. Mm. They it just doesn't react like their amygdalas don't don't light up. You know, they just yeah. don't care. Um, uh, and they they might react with more aggression to, to different faces, so anger faces, right? Um, but they might say, but they have very good uh, maybe cognitive empathy, so being able to understand other people. So they don't have the emotional empathy, but they might have cognitive empathy, so they get people mm-hmm. and they understand that because that's how they get to their goals. That's mm-hmm. how you get the money. That's how you get the power. That's how, you know, the drugs, whatever they want. Um, so they do have empathy, just not the kind you like. <laughs> And uh, that's helpful in many contexts, right? Maybe in our society, having a lot of money is or power or whatever is just adaptive. But there's there's issues with like they can't maintain friends, they can't maintain um, a family, they don't take care of their kids that well, right? Mm-hmm. And that could, you know, that could be problematic in general. They could ho- they have to hop around to person to person because they can't form those long lasting relationships. Whether that's important to you, that's another thing, right? Yeah. So one person had asked over Instagram, how can these people seemingly act with disregard to the consequences? And I would probably adjust that to say they don't act with disregard to the consequences, but they just might be caring about different consequences than you or I would. Mm-hmm. So I might care about the consequences of another person being hurt. They don't care about that consequence. <laughs> they mm-hmm. care about the consequence of getting away with it and with getting what they want, but they don't care about and I'm saying this is for a specific slice of the ASPD population, those high in psychopathy and high in callous and emotional traits. Mm-hmm. They don't care about hurting another person's feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'll give an example. There's one um, assessment that I was doing. I've, I've actually had a couple of patients and um, <laughs> ex-boyfriends with uh, the antisocial personality disorder, but was someone I was um, doing an assessment with this like beautiful girl mm-hmm. um, with some psychopaths. I've, I, there's like this coldness. It's with the chill in the air. There's like a, a feel. This is how I feel when I work with them is I'm uncomfortable mm-hmm. and I can't pinpoint why is it, it feels like, it feels like a, ch- a chill deep down in my bones. And that's the only way I can describe it <laughs> based on any research is just like feel chilly around them. Yeah. And scared. There's a little bit of feeling scared because I think we do get a sense of when someone doesn't have empathy, when someone doesn't smile when you smile, they just, there's this like, like a, like you're in a room with a predator. So I was with this girl who's like beautiful and just like petite and, you know, like blonde and, um, answered everything great, like very charming. Like I, I was drawn to her, I was, mm-hmm. but also felt scared of her. And I didn't know why because she was answering everything pretty normally. But when we got more into relationships, there was just something off. Like she was just describing how her, um, she was just so annoyed with a boyfriend because he was so depressed and he was, um, he tried to kill himself and that was just so (laughs) annoying, annoying. annoying. (laughs) And she kept saying it like that, like, and then he like, I had to, I had to, you know, pump his stomach to him in the hospital. Ugh. And I thought, like, okay. <laughs> She's young. That's a kind of a weird way to describe it. But then later on, I was asking the questions about antisocial personality disorder. And I asked, you know, like, 
when other people are upset, like, how do you feel? And she goes, yeah, well, I know it doesn't, I don't know. I don't feel anything when that Mm -hmm. happens, when people are upset. I don't know why I never did. I always thought that was weird and people thought it was weird. But I learned over time that if I don't act upset when other people are upset, Mm -hmm. then they're not going to like me Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to get what I want. I remember Mm -hmm. that clearly. I'm not going to get what I want. Yeah. And she said, I especially learned how to do that with my family so that they don't kick me out. Oh my God, I love this person. I I just like, (laughs) like my, I felt like my heart froze, right? There's sometimes a sense when people say like, I don't care about other people's feelings as a defense mechanism. Like, I don't care. But I truly felt like she did not care. And she was saying like, I learned how to care. I learned to look like I care. Yeah. And I was like, oh dear. Like, well, and, and that the consequence she was worried about, it wasn't, it wasn't so when I act this way, people don't like me and I don't like that. It's when they don't like me, then there I receive negative consequences. Yeah. Like I don't I get, get what kicked I want. Out. I don't get what I want. Yeah. yeah. So like, it's Ooh. even jumping over the step of just liking other people's company. <laughs> yeah. Pure goal orientation towards something fairly external, like not, not connectedness. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. What a prime example. So I think it it could be interesting to bring in sociopathy now so that we can start disentangling them. Yeah. The problem I don't with- get what that is. I honestly <laughs> like you and I were talking about this before we <laughs> we recorded and we both were like what? So <laughs> well, the, so the problem, we the problem is that with psychopathy, we've got this pretty well-defined checklist. And so when people score high on this checklist, it's kind of like we have a definition of psychopathy. Sociopathy, we don't really have that. And so the research is pretty confusing and says different things. The most consistent things I was seeing were that sociopaths may also score high on this checklist. But the difference seems to be if you take a psychopath... <laughs> And it's, it's hard because if both people are scoring high on this checklist, then how do you mm-hmm. differentiate them? But the theory is that psychopaths are more genetic. They basically come out of the womb with brain abnormalities that are pretty resistant to change. Sociopaths may come out with more normal brains, but they're more environmentally influenced. So you might see a lot more abuse, neglect in their childhood. Mm-hmm. This becomes further convoluted because there's a gene-environment interaction. So if a kid comes out pretty temperamentally rough, and we see this in BPD as well, except in BPD it's more of like a sensitivity, like so they might be very emotional. With mm-hmm. this, it might be more aggressive or callous. The parents are not going to react well to that child. So they might act aggressively towards the child, or they might mm-hmm. act neglectfully, like, oh, I can't handle this child. Like this, right. I just want them to go away. Like I don't know what to do here. And so then the child gets worse. Um, so one theory is that there might be, um, an, a difference in origins. Mm. Another part may be that psychopaths are more naturally callous, uh, and they do things that are maybe a bit more premeditated and goal oriented versus a sociopath is more reactive and emotional and very sensitive to things like humiliation and shame. And this might be because when they were a child, they were treated with aggression, abuse, and humiliation. And so that becomes kind of like a core psychic threat. Uh, and so they might react aggressively towards per- like perceived slights. And if you look at the ASPD criteria, you know, you have 
one criteria is is this aggressiveness and a whole other one is lack of remorse. And so you could have either or with a lack of remorse trending more towards psychopath and the aggressiveness trending more towards sociopaths. So we might just even just scrap talking and also to be upfront, the research was kind of all over the place with these definitions. So I think that's a problem of like, we don't know how to treat them well, we don't know how to do a lot of research on them well, because this, these definitions are kind of um, more like vague and loose. Um, But maybe we could talk instead of say, they're psychopaths and sociopaths, maybe we could Mm -hmm. talk about them as like traits, right, that people with ASPD tend to have. But it seems like so sociopathy is a little bit more aggressiveness, violence, law-breaking, impulsivity, and psychopaths are more of the interpersonal, like, deceit and manipulativeness and the yeah. and lack of remorse. Is that, is that how we're Potent- thinking about this? I mean, potentially. I, it's It seems like psychopaths might commit violence for different reasons. They mm-hmm. might mm-hmm. commit violence because it's entertaining to them or because it is in service of a goal, but it's maybe more thought out and methodical. Yeah, like Patrick um, Bateman, yeah. <laughs> who's the real life example. Um, Patrick Bateman was like, it was murdering people who were the competition was getting in his way of something uh-huh. like that. And it was also there seemed to be some kind of a sick pleasure in hurting people. Right. Um, versus like, just, oh, they just um, maybe Walt and Breaking Bad was like, backed into a corner in a fight, and he would do something violent. Uh huh. And well, you see, Walt tended to, I mean, he, the whole ending of that was based on him having some sort of moral compass or remorse, right? I mean, he's with the yes but i wouldn't give it away because it's one of the best endings okay, in tv fine. history according to my opinion but yes i mean it's i think that's the thing that's the problem when you're when you're dealing with these people it's like you want people to have remorse you want to mm-hmm. search for their kernel of empathy or compassion or something like the times i've worked with them i was digging for it like with this girl i was assessing i was like but don't you feel bad when your brother is hurting right you <laughs> want them to have that and you don't know all the time if they're literally born like with this learning deficit of emotional connection or is it like um that they're defensively hiding it because they've been abused for so long, right? Yeah. So you don't you don't know. Yeah, it, it's it's tough. I I think so. Another interesting divide in ASPD is that I'm forgetting the exact numbers, but it's something like half show pretty low or normal levels of anxiety. The other half are very high anxiety, mm-hmm. which you wouldn't necessarily expect from this colloquial term psychopath. Like when we think of psychopaths, we see, you know, we think of cold and unemotional and that does. So those higher checklist people tend to be the less anxious half of the ASPD Mm. population versus the, and again, we can drop this term, but maybe what we're thinking of a sociopath, you're seeing much more anxious, depressed people Mm. there. And Mm -hmm. so they, they might be reacting more from a place of emotion, actually. So it's not that they're unemotional. They may have lack of mentalization processing. So they might have lower empathic um, relating like you were talking about, Mm -hmm. but they still have high emotions in themselves. Mm -hmm. So high capacity for shame, for instance, high capacity for anger. I see. Okay. So yeah, I guess we could be a little careful with throwing around the terms of like, oh, it's just sociopath, psychopath. It's a little bit different things. Uh-huh. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, it's a little bit hard to define. I'll give us, I'll give us a story that popped in my mind. This is super embarrassing. Um, but I was just thinking when we're talking about like kids showing psychopathy, there was, I was looking at some old um, childhood videos of mine. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, oh my god, yes, I love this story. Oh god, oh so embarrassing. <laughs> but um, <laughs> hopefully, I'm not a sociopath now. But I looked or a psychopath now. See, I'm, I'm even. You are so up. far from being a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, I. There was a video of me in this playgroup, you know, those gym playgroups with kids, little toddlers running around on jungle gyms and uh-huh. monkey bars and all that stuff. Well, there's, I was, I gotta be two years old or something, two or three. And I'm trying to reach up to this monkey bar so badly. Like you could see me for like a few minutes reaching and reaching and trying to go on my tippy toes and try to step on this. And, and, and then I, I'm so frustrated. I'm so, so frustrated. And then you see this little boy toddling behind me and without even looking at him, I'm staring at the bar, but I grab him and I throw him down the floor and I step on him to be able to reach up to the bar. And you see my mom swoop in and go, no, 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 no. And just like, pull me off this little boy. And uh, I've since buried that that video. It's not to be seen to, uh, uh, by anyone else. But I remember thinking to myself, like, oh, my God. I, if I saw this kid, I would think that I'm a psychopath. But okay. that's the kind of behavior you're talking about here. Yes. And... <laughs> So you don't terrify parents who have two-year-olds that are acting like mafia members. Mentalization (laughs) ability uh, develops around the age of four. So when you were two, you were probably incapable of understanding that that kid might feel humiliated by that action. Thank you, science. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually cool. So this does not count as a scientific study, but when I was in undergrad, uh, we basically had to do like, the, it, it, it was a, it was a class that was like teaching us how to begin thinking about observational studies. And I took it in kind of more of a quantitative approach, but I didn't have a big enough sample size. But basically I was looking at this idea of sympathetic sharing. So like, when does something like altruism develop? And that does seem to be around the age of four. Hmm. Um, and so I, I set up this, this paradigm where I would have three-year-olds and four-year-olds come into the room and I'd give them stickers. So they'd all be be happy with their little stickers. And then I had two sheep stuffed animals. And one of them was Hal and one of them was Sal. Hal was just so happy and he was having the best time with his toys and he's just playing with everyone in the playground. Oh my god, life is great. And then Sal was just so sad and all his toys were broken and nobody wanted to play with him and he was just so sad and he didn't know what to do. And then I asked the kids if any of them would like to share their stickers and if so, who they would like to share with. And more of the four-year-old shared with Sal, who was like probably lamer and less fun to play with, but they, but they, oh. it indicated a sense of like, oh, I, I can make this sheep feel better by giving him my stickers versus the happy fun one so things like altruism sympathetic sharing that kind of thing happens around the age of four unless you're a psychopath (laughs) (laughs) good to know yeah so parents out there don't worry if your kid (laughs) throws another child on the floor in order to get the monkey bars but if they keep doing it they keep doing it past the age of four get them into a business school you know (laughs) Yeah, they'll slay with the ladies yeah. if you just put them into business school. <laughs> um, okay, so... Another question? We could uh, take another question. We could take a, oh, and I'll just say, the, the last thing on this note is one paper was saying that the difference between 
psychopaths and sociopaths. Again, I think we're going to drop these terms, but psychopaths tend to have no remorse. Sociopaths might have remorse, but it's more towards an in-group. So they're Hmm. very, very connected with uh, their gang or their family or something Mm, like that. Or maybe not very, very connected, but that's, that's kind of who they're caring about. More than psychopaths who are caring yeah. about themselves. That's yeah. a possible distinction. Again, this research is pretty sticky. So another, so one thing I kind of want to make the point of is that, like, I think it's an interesting discussion to have about this diagnosis being kind of a legal term, because uh, it's not. I mean, one of the papers was just making this case that, like, there's a little bit of a lack of like internalized like psychological processes we are seeing it though somewhat with like the the lack of remorse and deceitfulness but i just think it's interesting to think that a lot of people in adverse environments like gangs could easily get this diagnosis or more easily get this diagnosis Mm. when it that could be the sort of sociology of like the culture that they're in you know Mm -hmm. what i mean Mm -hmm. yeah it's 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 blaming the individual instead of the system where a lot of psychopaths or people who are violent are violent because maybe they they've grown up in dangerous environments or like with gangs or that's the only options they have right which is obviously biased to certain socioeconomic and um ethnic backgrounds which is awful yeah i mean and a mm-hmm. and a gang could have a culture of violence mm-hmm. where it's acceptable right and mm-hmm probably bringing down remorse and i mean the military can Mm -hmm. do this too right Mm -hmm. like the military Mm -hmm. is designed to allow people to act violently and without remorse because remorse is not a good thing when you need to kill people (laughs) for your job you know so it's just and like if you think of maybe this is less likely the military uh but if you think of like gangs or something maybe you've acted violently before the age of 15 because you were extremely poor and you so you're shoplifting um you were modeled uh, you know a certain kind of behavior maybe you feel at odds with the rest of society because you feel like the rest of society has been unjust towards you or that you've been born into naturally unfair circumstances so it's just i think it's imp- it's important, as I think we're about to talk about treatment, to think about what this diagnosis really means and how very mm-hmm. different people could be slotted into it. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, a couple questions on, can you confirm that this cannot be treated or can this be treated? <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is complicated. It's complicated. Um, the researcher we're looking at says that we, it's kind of, it's hard to tell, especially with all these different definitions, right? Like, who are you treating here? I do see that people who have high uh, uh, psychopathy, who are psychopaths, you know, whatever you want to say, um, tend to be harder to treat. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, when you have someone coming in for ASPD, when they want most of the time they don't people don't walk into your office being like treat my antisocial personality disorder usually it's like court ordered or brought in by someone else so they can stop breaking the law or hurting other people um so already people come in not wanting this treatment right they don't see themselves as the problem they have no remorse right um people who are, are have high psychopathy tend to be dangerous so people who are therapists get really nervous about working with these people who might do things that are like ruthless they might assault people they might um you know sexually or physically or emotionally and they you know feel comfortable treating that so it's it's tough um 
And also, there, so there's a lot of worry of risk with treatment. So they not, might not be great for, um, you know, talk therapy. The thing that you can have leverage on as a, as a therapist is that they might, they, you might have buy-in. We call it buy-in if someone wants to engage in treatment. If you agree that, you know, you want to help them stop their um, rule breaking or uh, violation of laws, uh, especially if it helps them get something that they want, right? Like I'll so- help you stop breaking the law if it allows you to get custody over the children um, or it keeps you out of jail, mm-hmm. right? Or gets you the job that you really want, right? That's there. There's a little bit more um, buy-in with, with people, with uh, patients with antisocial personality disorder. Um, and it's tough because then there's a lot of power dynamics. The times I've worked with people with some antisocial personality disorder, it's always about they don't like authority. You know, they don't like someone with power over them. So they're constantly challenging you. They're, they're, they're breaking rules. They're coming late. They're not paying for the therapy. They're being mean to you. Like, it's a real power struggle. And therapists have to learn to not get into that power struggle. But it's really tough because the way we learn to work is through the connection, right? Like making a bond, making, um, you know, having a therapeutic alliance, and they are fighting that, or they just don't care about you. They want they want what they want. And they don't care that you're scared that they're gonna hurt somebody, right? One of the treatments I read said that people high on the psychopathy checklist almost shouldn't be treated because they may just learn new tricks for manipulating other people. Ooh, yikes. <laughs> I did have a patient um, uh, that I learned over time had ASPD. Um, mm-hmm. He had a lot of other stuff too. He had, had a lot, really hard life, was um, was abused and was in the army. So, you know, he, uh, I don't, I don't blame him, but he came in with that cold chill feeling, right? He came yeah. in and was like, oh, I'm having such a hard time. I've, um, uh, there's a lot of substance abuse in uh, ASPD. So he was talking about how he's getting over substance abuse issues and really wants to get into treatment because he wants to reunite with his wife. Mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, like sad. And he was like, I'm really working on being more vulnerable. So he'd look at me with these big eyes and cry. But there was, and usually that would just get me, but mm-hmm. there was something about it that I had to look away. Like I had, mm-hmm. I felt disgusted when he cried. It felt performative. It felt almost aggressive. It was like aggressive sadness. He was like, I feel so ashamed and would look me dead in the eye and cry. And it's just, I don't know. It was so, it was so disturbing. And I, I find out over time, you know, so I'm working on these skills with him, how to, you know, work with his emotions, learn how to validate, learn how to like listen to her and whatever. And I learned over time um, through working with other providers that he's worked with that he has lied to everybody. <laughs> and he was actually what, way more violent towards her than I he ever told me. So uh-huh. he was saying that she kicked him out of the house for the drug abuse. And then I find out that he actually assaulted her. Yeah. And, you know, this is a common thing with treating ASPD. It's like this feeling of betrayal and anger and, mm-hmm. you know, like this, this, like, I thought we had a trust, but he didn't care. He wanted to get into treatment to, you know, keep his job, keep his family, not, and stay off drugs because it was a problem. Yeah. But he didn't care about the same things as I cared about, which is like actually connecting to his wife. So it's, it's tough. Like they could still be treated for things like, for things like that, right? To like yeah. check certain behaviors, but 
not everything. I mean, it seems like the presence of mentalization or empathy seems really important for how treatable these people are. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one so this this paper we were reading that uh, was recommending like a group therapy because in a group you can more easily see the effects of your words or behaviors on mm. on others, and so mentalization can potentially increase. Uh, it, it also had a line about the therapist, you should probably expect authority issues. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in a way, the therapist can serve almost a reparenting role where the ASPD person can act out their rebelliousness against a safe Interesting. parental figure. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, again, like there are high, high rates of comorbidity with anxiety and depression and substance use. All three of those are treatable. And so potentially bringing some of that down, Mm. I mean, alcohol use, cocaine use, I mean, that's going to raise impulsivity, right? So if some of this behavior is actually kind of mediated by um, substance use, then potentially bringing, you know, treating some of that might bring down some of the the criminal or violent behavior. That's a good point. Yeah, I know that um, uh, mentalization-based therapy, which is originally for people mm-hmm. with borderline personality disorder, it's developed by um, Fonagy and Bateman, mm-hmm. two really fantastic um, British uh, psychologists um, who basically work on your mentalization or your empathy and perspective-taking skills. They've adapted MBT for people with antisocial personality disorder, and they mostly do it in in like police um, prison settings. Um, so it might not people be only psychopaths, but it might be people who be people who are like violent, impulsive, and end up in jail. Yeah. But they've had some success, and it is a lot of like group. It's a group setting, and it's a lot of like they're challenging each other and then discussing what what's happening. It's it's fascinating. So I think they had some success, but that's one therapy that I know this is trying to tackle this problem. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it seems like for people who are more callous and uh, and unemotional, one conduit towards at least bringing down the criminal behavior could be using a more goal-directed approach of it will help you get what you want faster if you cut this shit out. Mm -hmm. And then for other people with mentalization capacities, mentalization-based therapy, uh, maybe like a mentalization-based group therapy could be helpful. I know DBT has there's been attempts there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and then, and then potentially bringing down the comorbid diagnoses so that if people are acting because of substance abuse, because of high anxiety, basically having negative emotions that they can't stand. And so they'll do anything to bring down those negative emotions. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, you know, we talked about that, this with BPD and shame, but if you feel humiliated and you can't stand that and you have low empathy, you're just going to react violently. Cause it's like, right. I want that cause of my humiliation exterminated <laughs> yeah but if you have a lower capacity to, to jump to humiliation then perhaps we could circumvent that mm. process mm-hmm. last question <laughs> basically what do you do if your loved one is uh has antisocial personality disorder and one person said how do you forgive yourself for having loved someone with aspd so kibby Oof. You have some experience with this. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way that's phrased, how to forgive yourself. That just like answers yeah. everything right there, right? <laughs> um, it's it's kind of like um, you really, uh, if you are if you love someone with antisocial personality or like with psychopathy, um, you, it, it's hard because they're charming. 
Mm-hmm. You want to get at a vulnerable part. You want to get that connection. And they they pull it. They might, like, lure you in with it and then pull it away. Right? So this it, – it's tough. I, I could – I remember feeling that it was such a – it was such a draw. And then you feel stupid when you're tricked or something like that. Or um, they betray you or they're, you know, they break a rule and they get in trouble. You feel stupid over and over again. So there is a lot of forgiveness <laughs> that has to happen. Mm-hmm. I had um, an, uh, an old boyfriend. I really hope he isn't listening. Um, but I had an old boyfriend who... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My own safety. No, I'm kidding. Who I just didn't understand what this was. I didn't get... What was happening? Very, very smart, very handsome, very um, clever. Got what he wanted all the time, of course. Um, and would just lie about really weird things. Like uh, we got into a fight once, and he and I, I something he did hurt my feelings. Um, I won't go into that, but it was just really he was like manipulating me into doing something I wasn't comfortable with, and it, I got upset. Um, and I talked to him on the phone about. It. I was like, that really like was terrible and violated my boundaries. Um, I said it probably not as eloquently. I was like 15. And and he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I did this to you. I'm so mad at myself. I'm going to hurt myself. Mm. And he told me he like broke his heel on glass mm. because he was so upset that he hurt me. And I was I was a, a distraught, right? I was like, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. I'm not that upset, right? I, I took it back. And he was like, oh, okay. Like, I just really care about you, right? And then... Like a, a week later, he showed me the scar on his foot, and he was like, "This is this is where I did it." Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, it was only a couple of days later. I was like, "You can't develop a scar that fast mm-hmm. after hurting yourself." Like mm-hmm. that was a weird lie, and I confirmed <laughs> that it was a lie for his mom, who was like, "What? What? He didn't do that." And I remember thinking, "That's so weird." And he would just have really strange humor like he would make me upset and laugh like one time he's i was on a plane to visit him and when i got there he was like i just imagined the plane crashing and i laughed (laughs) and i started to cry (laughs) and he was like and he genuinely looked at me and said why are you crying isn't that funny my god and not even sarcastic he was like i'm sorry what did i say it was it wasn't that funny and i I remember being like oh god like this is and i and the real true moment was we were visiting, um, we're abroad. Um, if I give away the details, you'll know who it is. <laughs> but um, we were abroad and uh, I was just like admiring this beautiful view and there's all these little animals around these like, you know, there's little hedgehogs running around this and little so like upsetting. squirrels and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, look, 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 a hedgehog. I've never seen one. He was like, oh, okay, thanks. Takes a shovel, uh-huh. picks up the hedgehog. Blings it over the the fence down down a cliff. I mean, and I scream bloody murder. I'm I'm like, but I, I'm distraught. And he looks at me again with the same look, and he's like, "Are you okay? What happened? What's wrong?" Uh huh. I was like, "You killed this." And he was like, "Yeah. What? Why? Yeah, of course. I don't want them in my yard." I. It was. It's that picture. I will never forget that that picture. That I thought, oh my god, there's something wrong with him. There's, yeah. there, there's something wrong with him. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it was like that all his life. And I think he's a very successful businessman right now. And <laughs> Oh, my God. Well, and yeah. the trick he played on you. With- oh, my God. Yeah. Um, oof, that was that was a hard part. That was really, oh, God. Okay, so we are also on the same trip. We get into a huge argument. Um, 
And he calls his mother and says in a different language, um, uh, something that I didn't understand, but he's, he's, he's speaking in the language. And then what he says, as I translated later was, um, she broke my nose. <laughs> and like, I didn't know what was happening in the moment. We were fighting and crying and he gets off the phone. He was like, okay, um, my mom has booked you a flight tomorrow. And she wants you to leave. And I, I never want to see you again. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm so sorry. Oh, my God. Like, you know, I'm so mm-hmm. sorry. And I'm crying and begging. And he and he leaves. He yeah. leaves me in a hotel by myself in this foreign land. And I'm all alone. I'm scared. I, You know, I feel like I ruined our family's relationship. And the next day, I'm still sobbing. He, we pack up my bag. We start to head to the airport. And then he, as soon as we're about to get to the airport, he turns around and goes, I lied. I didn't call my mother. Let's go back and enjoy the rest of our trip. That's chilling. Yeah, it's chilling. And I, I, I I don't know why I did just, just for punishing, just to watch me suffer. I'm not sure, but to get the power back, I don't know. But that, that's a psychopath. And um, how do you forgive yourself? I think it took me a while because I think that the psychopath people who don't take accountability or have remorse for their own actions mm-hmm. will make you feel bad, right? They put the accountability on you. And so I, for a while, I felt I was crazy. I felt like I was broken. I was making th- these things happen. I was young, I was confused. And it took a while for me to learn that I'm not I don't know, so whatever I thought I was. Yeah, he, he did that in a couple of different tricky ways. I mean, the first thing he did, it was it turned out to be a lie. But instead of when, when you said that he upset you, you're upset. Instead of saying, oh, I'm so sorry for what I did. He moved to I'm a horrible person who needs to be punished, mm-hmm. which then elevates yeah. or escalates, you know, the, the situation to a point where you are forced to give up being upset with him because it's yep. more important to comfort him and bring mm-hmm. him back down to, to earth. Mm-hmm. And this happens all the time with like a number of different, we could have talked about this on the vulnerable narcissism episode, people who, instead of apologizing for their behavior, say, I'm just so pathetic. I just hate mm-hmm. myself. I'm such a terrible person. It forces the person who is initially upset to start comforting them and to release their own emotions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he did it that way. And then he did it through, again, escalating things to such a point where if you wanted to maintain any sort of stability or continuity in your own life, you again had to release being upset with him and focus on how can I fix myself? How can I make this right? Mm -hmm. So that I can stay in this foreign country where I'm safe, Mm -hmm. (laughs) stay in this relationship that I've been in, um, not turn an entire family against me. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it was all it all felt like looking back, it all felt like a power play, right? Yeah. All different things to put me in a place where I'm controlled, yeah. and I'm wrong, and I'm too scared to keep you obedient. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and was still good at good at show, like either acting or maybe in some in some in his own way felt bad when I was upset, mm-hmm. but reacted to it in such strange ways, right? Mm-hmm. Like that it, it, it was just it was just not it was just not right. And it took me years to forgive myself. I had a really hard time. And I think I think I just learning about psychopathy and learning about these traits, and they're just fundamentally different. They care about different things. They don't have the same form of empathy that we do. Because if he if I thought that he did, 
in some ways it seems crazier like it puts them in a in a sphere of humanity that mm-hmm. i feel like i know and understand um and he like like overcame empathy to hurt me but if you don't have it it's almost kind of like that person is like an alien right yeah. so it's like i had to think of, of him as like a person who's just fundamentally like almost like had a learning disability for like um, human emotions. And that's a way I could forgive myself and maybe him in a way. I mean, I think it's hard, especially for highly empathic individuals to understand that there are some people who are just missing. It's like uh, people who, yeah, can't see part of the color spectrum or are missing a sense. Mm -hmm. It can be hard for us to understand what that's like and to imagine that and so it and it it also might feel bad to the empathic person to say oh you're a monster or an alien like i think the Mm -hmm. empath is going to want to assume human characteristics right right and goodness to another person what when you said you had to forgive yourself though what was the anger towards yourself that you were holding um I I didn't understand what it was, so I thought all of the problems were my fault. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I take accountability. I definitely was, like, hot-headed and kind of chaotic back then, especially with, um, you know, issues at, at home and stuff like that. So definitely a lot of our fights would be, I put it on myself, that I am, like, this is my fault. I made him hurt his foot. I made him do these things. Um because he would say like it's your fault, right? <laughs> and so, and I think it would, especially if you're young or don't know yourself well, and you're kind of and and you're learning yourself, uh, learning about yourself in relationships, right? Especially mm-hmm. early ones. So if you date or love a psychopath, you're forming part of your sense of self through that, yeah. and it's so distorted that I had to live my life and date other people and and connect to people who really cared about me to get to a place where I could forgive myself. So, you know, I think it's interesting, especially when you're young, this is a half baked thought. So I don't know if it's even worth saying, but when we are children, when, when bad, when we do bad things, it's usually said to be our fault. Parents are rarely apologizing for their own behavior or taking accountability for dynamics, at least maybe in prior generations. And so I wonder if we're kind of trained to accept more blame than to dole out in a lot mm-hmm. of situations. Um, and so it can be maybe more believable when somebody says that's your fault. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. Because it, because then you have to question everything. You have to question that person's humanity. You have to question your love for them. And the mm-hmm. love was real, you mm-hmm. know? So uh, it was just easier for me to be like, Oh, because it's under my control if something's wrong with me. Right. Mm-hmm. If, mm-hmm. if it, Otherwise the terror that that person was just that, um, that's sadistic and uncontrollable and there's nothing I could do about it. It's just too much. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to realize these people in some ways are well-trained to manipulate you. They, I mean, mm-hmm. the superficial charm, the higher cognitive empathy. So, you know, I mean, the ability and, and that probably facilitates an accelerated learning process when you don't actually care about other people's feelings. You can experiment more with people and learn more about various consequences and how to manipulate, how to get your way. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're, they're, they're well-trained and, um, and they probably seem exciting and mysterious. You mm-hmm. know, how can I get them to connect? How can I get them to love me? I seem to have it in the beginning. Oh my God, our relationship is exciting. So there's a lot of pull here, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, when we have, you know, we're giving tips to you guys, or like, if you have a loved one with antisocial personality disorder, is 
uh, if you can, I really like set boundaries, very strict boundaries, um, mm. and keep yourself safe and, um, forgive yourself. Like this is, these are one of these things that there's not much you can do to change them mm. at the, in the moment. Right. And you might be hoping that there is a conscience. You might be hoping there's empathy. And if, if they only cared about you enough, it was it would be enough for them to stop doing what they're doing. But you got to relieve yourself of that. Yeah. Of that trap of thinking. Right. Okay. Well, I love this discussion and I feel like we'll probably have more, but for now, any resources? Yeah, I really like this book. Um, it's by Dr. Robert Hare, the person um, I talked about who made the um, psychopathy checklist. So he has a book that you could get on Amazon or wherever. It's called Without Conscious, The Disturbing World of the Psychopaths Among Us. That's so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Creepy title. So, yeah, go for that book. Or um, we'll link a couple of other of the research that we're talking about here on our website. So you could check that out there. Okay, well, Guys, if any of you do have empathy and you want to make us feel better, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Otherwise, you're basically a psychopath. And we'll see you next week. By accessing this podcast, I acknowledge that the hosts of this podcast make no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. This podcast and any and all content or services available on or through this podcast are provided for general, non-commercial informational purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medical or any other professional judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment and should not be considered or used as a substitute for the independent professional judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment of a duly licensed and qualified healthcare provider. In case of a medical emergency, you should immediately call 911. The hosts do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast, and information from this podcast should not be referenced in any way to imply such approval or endorsement.